0: Okay, so before, uh, if you may have heard the tail end of Sterling Fox's show, I teased uh, a piece of trivia. What happened three years ago today? Today has been a very interesting day in history. If we go back and look at what happened June 29th over the course of time, in the year 1613 in London, William Shakespeare's Globe Theatre burnt to the ground. In 1922, France granted a one-square-kilometre plot of land at Vimy Ridge, saying it could be freely used for all time to the government of Canada, the free use of this land exempt from all taxes. In 1975, on this day in history, June 29th, Steve Wozniak tested his first prototype of the Apple One computer. And then believe it or not, and it's uh, for me hard to believe that this was just in 2007, Apple released its first mobile phone, the iPhone. If we look a little bit closer to home, though, what happened here in B.C. three years ago today? Well, if you have a very good memory for politics, perhaps you'll remember that today Christy Clark was defeated in a confidence vote. Now, I have to give credit to my colleague, Richard Zussman. He was brainstorming about this today on social media, and he listed all the things that have happened since then over the past three years. And the list is really long. The list, it's longer than my spring cleaning to-do list while I was in quarantine. What has happened over the past three years in BC politics? ICBC officially dubbed a dumpster fire. MSP and bridge tolls, those were toasted. Uh, The NDP approved Site C and tried to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline, leading, of course, to the Grapevines versus Pipelines Battle Royale between us and the province of Alberta. To continue this walk down memory lane, though, we're joined now by Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. Rob, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on, Nikki.
0: What were you doing three years ago today? Do you remember?
1: I was um, sitting in the legislature feeling the walls shake because I distinctly remember when the confidence vote happened that brought the Liberals down. The stained glass and the walls were kind of like rattling because there was so much applause in the chamber. And then, I mean, it was a really surreal day because we knew it was coming. We knew that the vote was not in the Liberals' favor. But I remember after the confidence vote happened, Christy Clark was the last one out of the chamber. There was Liberal MLAs and staffers lining the walls to her office. So she walked this gauntlet of people. It was carried live on NW and live on Global. Got to her office, went out into a van to go to Government House. There was a helicopter hovering over the van and covering her as she drove to, to Government House. We all scrambled to get into our vehicles and drove to Government House and kind of camped out there for the better part of three or four hours trying to figure out, okay, well, what's, what's going to happen here? Is the lieutenant governor going to allow her to call another election? Is that was her request, was go to the polls. Um, or are we going to see John Horgan get uh, tapped to be the next premier? And then as we waited out there, um, John Horgan got the call. He he calls it the million-dollar call from the uh, government house, and he showed up, and uh, the lieutenant governor uh, ended up uh, uh, asking him if he could form government, and he emerged as the, the new premier. It was like, I mean, it was a pretty bizarre day. It was a, it was an extraordinary day. It was the first time that that sequence of events, that that a party that didn't win Right. An election. And let's be clear, like the NDP did not win the last election. The the, it, the Liberals won the most amount of seats. But because of this lightning in a bottle scenario where the Liberals were one seat short of a majority. So they had 43 seats, one seat short of a majority. Uh, and the NDP had 41 and the Greens had three. So the Greens and the NDP, when they partnered up, had 44 seats and the Liberals had 43. And to, to remember how close it was Remember the key riding was Courtney Comox, right? Of course, the NDP yeah. won they, they, on election night. It looked like they won by nine votes. So it was like someone's extended family had they gone to the polls uh, that day <laughs> may have changed the balance <laughs> of the election. It ended up being a, a larger uh, margin after the recount was done. But it was so, it was such a wild ride from the May, um, you know, election to this day three years ago when the confidence vote actually happened, um, and we haven't seen a series of events where a party that didn't win the election toppled the government on a confidence vote and then got installed into power by the Lieutenant Governor. I don't think we've seen that since, I remember it was like 1880 something, 1883. I mean, it's a very, very rare set of circumstances in BC. So it was quite a, It was quite a day three years ago today, although it feels like a lot longer.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, it's so funny because over the past three months, how many times have we heard we are living through history right now? You know, this Mm -hmm. will be in the history books, what's happening right now. But if we were wanting the clock three years ago, especially hearing the way that you describe it, we were living through B.C. political history then, too.
1: Oh, it was... was We were in uncharted waters. I remember all these constitutional... Everyone was suddenly a constitutional expert. You know, everyone's a public health (laughs) expert. Yeah, everybody on on social media. Yeah, yeah. everyone was suddenly, you know, on Twitter saying, that's not how this uh, parliamentary Westminster system works. But but it it was a kind of unprecedented decision. And now we're in, again, unprecedented times. But that word's been thrown around a lot. But it is, um, I mean... You know, we we all thought, I think, on Confidence Vote Day that um, John Horgan had a pretty good chance of becoming premier. And when he emerged and he was premier, the next question was, well, how long is he going to last? And typically minority governments, um, you know, last somewhere in the realm of 18 months. uh, It's kind of the average that's floated out there by political scientists. And we weren't quite sure how this was all going to develop. The Greens and the NDP hated each other in the last election. And John Horgan... And Andrew Weaver were not even remotely close to friends. They barely would talk to each other. So we went through this massive change that brought the Greens and the NDP together. We saw Christy Clark lose the confidence vote, disappear as a party leader. Daryl Plekis, the liberal MLA, um, who defected to the NDP and became speaker and helped solidify the, the kind of situation we have now. So it was a series of just amazing um unprecedented events that kind of captivated us all at the time. But we all thought it was going to be a short ride and now we're sitting here three years later likely looking for a full four year mandate. I, I can't see I know there's kind of rumblings, but I, I don't see how you do an election in the middle of COVID, um, with with no gatherings allowed and no rallies and people worried about lining up at the polls. So I think we're in for a full four year term by John Horgan and a minority government, which is Itself unprecedented to use that word that we use so often these days.
0: And talking about the leadership changes that have occurred over the past three years, I mean, of course, uh, we know John Horgan became premier. Christy Clark obviously uh, left politics. Andrew Wilkinson became the leader of the Liberal Party. Andrew Weaver announced that he would be leaving politics.
1: Mm-hmm. It is uh, the uh, the faces just keep changing, you know, and I think. The, the significance to keep uh, in mind with Andrew Wilkinson is that he was very much the establishment candidate for the Liberals. And, the, and there's a lot of people in the Liberals who feel like, you know what, we almost won the next election, nine more votes on election night, and we wouldn't even be having this conversation. It would be majority, Liberal government, no concessions to the Greens, none of anything we've seen in the last three years would have been happening. So there's a feeling in the Liberals that with an with a establishment candidate like Andrew Wilkinson, all you have to do is flip one riding in the next election and bang, you're kind of back into the good graces of the electorate, although probably you want to flip three at least to sort of solidify yourself. So he that's the significance of Andrew Wilkinson. Andrew Weaver, um, you know, he obviously wants to go back to academia. He was a climate scientist, uh, and uh, his departure may or may not mean the end of the, the B.C. Greens. We'll see if he was the force that drove that party or not. So that's, uh, that's up for debate. And, you know, John Horgan... I, He is a guy who did not want to become premier. He he almost bowed out of the NDP leadership uh, before the election. He was kind of reluctantly pulled in as party leader, and he somehow, um, to his credit, stepped up and became this premier that when you talk to New Democrats, they think, we always thought this John Horgan would emerge, but we never knew he was going to be as good as he is. And so you have these kind of rise and fall departures and arrivals, people stepping up, people stepping back. Um, it was a tumultuous uh, few years in politics, for sure.
0: And it has been since, because they've taken a bite out of a lot of different issues in the province of British Columbia. Two big ones mm-hmm. that come to mind right away, ICBC and money laundering.
1: Yeah, so, you know, ICBC is this file that the Liberals, um, you know, the NDP are handling it. They're making big changes, no-fault insurance and a number of other things, but they view it as a... As a very easy way to attack the previous liberal government, which got caught in in this kind of, we see this um, happening again and again, where governments promise the electorate that they're going to drive down rates. People are grumbling about ICBC rates, ferry rates, hydro rates, that kind of thing, and they promise to drive the rates down. And what they actually do is they just sort of push problems off to the future. And that's what the Liberals did with ICBC. They kept the rates low by you know, tapping into the excess money, pushing problems down the road, and so for the NDP, they see ICBC as this kind of win file that criticizes the Liberals and allows them to make some changes. But it was not in their campaign platform. I mean, I, it's not a file that the NDP necessarily ran on. It's just something that they're they're dealing with. You know, the, it's weird because we we forget the election, we forget the big issues that were at play in the 2017 election. But childcare, you know, was a right. really big one. Yep. Ten dollar a day childcare, and the NDP have struggled to to implement that. There's a ten year plan for ten dollar a day childcare, which I don't think anyone really realized At, in the election. That wasn't spelled out. So almost a generation of kids who probably aren't going to see ten dollar a day uh, childcare. And then MSP was the other big one in the election, and of getting rid of medical services premiums. How do we pay for that? where's that revenue coming from and so those those were and bridge tolls and bridge tolls i was driving Western over Vancouver. the
0: portman the other day and i thought about that remember when there was bridge tolls
2: here i know
1: and <laughs> super popular uh, and, a, and a great go get a uh, vote getter especially in surrey but those were those were like the campaign issues and then there's these other things that pop up after the election that the ndp has to deal with as government site c deciding whether to continue that or not which they did LNG and accepting that project, Um, you know, ICBC, as you mentioned. So there's like big gut check moments for the NDP government that they've had to deal with the last three years. And then the ones that they actually had to bring in from their platform. Uh, So there's lots of different ways you can look at what they've actually accomplished and why they, they did the things that they did. Well, Rob, we could spend
0: three years reviewing what happened over the past three <laughs> years in politics. Thank you so much for looking back on, on what's happened today in history and then what has happened since.
1: Hey, you're welcome. And just so I can plug this, mm-hmm. Richard Jussman and I, we wrote a book about this called A Matter of Confidence. Still out there on Amazon if you want to get it, where we go into a lot of detail of the election, how this all played out. And uh, I think it's a Still an interesting read for people.
0: Fantastic. On a sunny day like this, I can just imagine myself sitting on the beach reading it.
1: Okay. Thanks for having me on.
0: (laughs) Filling in for Jill Bennett, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. I'm sure you heard this in the news. Today, the Privacy Protection Authorities for BC, Canada, Quebec, and Alberta announced they will jointly investigate Tim Hortons and that app they have, which it turns out does a little bit more than just track your breakfast order. Just do a little bit more than than track what it is that you're coming into the store to buy or help you enter contests. The app also tracks your geolocation throughout the day, where you go, what you're doing, even if you're purchasing your donuts from a competitor or even if you've left the country. Anne Kavukian is the former Information and Privacy Commissioner for Ontario. She's also a leading privacy expert, and she joins us now to talk more about this. Anne, thank you so much for joining us. I suppose that in this day and age, nothing should surprise us anymore when it comes to perceived or real violations of our privacy, especially as it relates to technology. But I have to say, when I first read this story a few weeks ago, even I was taken aback to learn how Tim Hortons was tracking user movement and data through its app.
2: It was so appalling that Tim Horton would think that it was somehow acceptable to use your geolocation data, to collect your geolocation data, when it was unrelated to placing your order every morning. They have an app, you can say, you know, I want my bagel and black coffee. Every morning I'll pick it up at 8.30. Great. But you would think that's what they're using it for. As it turns out, they're collecting your geolocation data throughout the day, well into the evening at other times, seeing who you're connecting with. It's appalling.
0: It seems so nefarious, didn't it? Because on the one hand, you think that you're going in there and using this app to, like you said, order your bagel and keep track of your orders, whereas they were actually seeing if you were even going into a competitor's store to get your morning coffee there instead.
2: Absolutely. In addition to that, they were retain this information well into the evening uh, hours that you would never think Tim Hortons is collecting your data and seeing where you went from point A to point B at what times of the day. I mean, this is unthinkable that they would be doing this.
0: Is it though, like in this day and age, can we be shocked anymore that these companies are tracking us like they are when we give them a little bit of access to our information.
2: Damn right we should be shocked. And we should be shocked and complain bitterly, just like so many people have been when they heard that Tim Hortons was doing this. You don't just go along with it. Just because the tech allows them to do it doesn't mean they should be doing it. They should be valuing their customers, not just using the tech for whatever purposes it allows. And there was no transparency associated with this, nor was the consent of the individuals obtained prior. It's a lose-lose.
0: Right. So even in the fine print, it didn't say, hey, and we're going to track you at all hours of the day and watch your movements everywhere you
2: go. (laughs) It didn't. But even, I'm going to say even if it did, and it didn't. Even if it did, why would that be permissible? Why wouldn't they have to shout it from the rooftops that they're doing this and then obtain your positive informed consent First of all, they would never get your consent, which is why it's buried somewhere in their privacy policy or their terms of service or something. And that's what's so appalling. No transparency. Someone just happened to find that, find out about this, thank God, and then wrote about it in the newspaper, alerting people to it. So that's another reason why this is so acceptable. Tim Hortons is thinking they just get away with it because nobody bothers to read this stuff, nor should they be expected to read it.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's a really interesting point, because I know in a statement the Privacy Commissioner's Office said that it's going to look at whether Tim Hortons, and this is a quote, is obtaining meaningful consent from app users to collect and use their geolocation data for purposes, which could include the amassing and use of detailed user profiles, and whether that collection and use of that data is appropriate in the circumstances. So in other words, I suppose, you know, (laughs) even if it's written in that tiny little fine print, I mean, you can't say that that is that's rational or or justified or that you would expect people to even read all of that.
2: I, I, of course not. I mean, shall we bet on it? How many people actually read that? Nobody has the time or the inclination to read these things, but it doesn't mean that people don't care about piracy. People care deeply about privacy. All of the public opinion polls in the last two years have reported the highest level of concern for privacy. 90% very concerned about their privacy, 92% concerned about the lack of control over their personal information. So you can bet people want to use an app for the particular purpose it identifies, not for, you know, five other things that may be appearing in the fine print.
0: Well, that seems to be the strange thing about the day and age that we live in is more and more we're starting to learn that these companies don't really give a damn about what we want to order for breakfast in the morning and our convenience in being able to order that. They're all about trying to get our data.
2: That's right. That's absolutely true. Until the story is leaked. And then they're all apologetic and we didn't realize you didn't know about it. I mean, please. Let's get a little forthright about some of these things and just be open with your customers. We want to use this information for this purpose. Here's how it can benefit you if there is some benefit to the individual. Let people decide. They have to be able to make an informed, positive choice about this.
0: So what can an individual do who still wants to partake in an app that may make their life easier on a day-to-day basis, but they don't want to be tracked 24-7 by some company? What can they do to safeguard their own privacy?
2: Speak up. Do what I do. So if someone wants to use this app, before using the app, uh, send an email to the administrator and say, I want to use this app, but I don't want my information used for any purpose other than completing um, this app, you know, getting me my coffee and bagel when I want, et cetera. And if you send a notice, something to that effect, that you're providing this information to the app for it only to be used for the purpose of the app, then at least it alerts the people on the other side, oh, this person cares about privacy. Often when I've done this, both online and offline, um, like offline, they'll call the manager over because the clerk won't know anything, and he'll say, oh, you care about privacy. Oh, okay, we can upgrade your protection. We can do this, we can do that. So I'm hoping it'll be the same online at the Tim Hortons thing that you alert people you care about this, and you don't want any information used for any other purpose other than completing the uh, intention of the app. So just speaking out, I'm not saying it's 100%, but it alerts the other people that you're concerned about their pri- your privacy, and they'll offer you the best protection they have.
0: And moving forward, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, looking into this Tim Hortons case, if they find proof that Tim Hortons had been up to no good, then what, what could happen here? What are the repercussions of this?
2: Well, unfortunately, the federal commissioner doesn't have um, order-making power or uh, penal you know, the ability to penalize uh, companies, but what the real punishment will be is the federal commissioner will issue a big press release and saying, Tim Hortons has been violating your privacy by collecting this information uh, without your knowledge or consent, something like that. So it can have a very negative you know, impact in terms of any competitive advantage you hope to gain. It'll be the exact opposite. So the negative media will drive people away from potentially Tim Hortons to somewhere else. That's the, the real impact um, of the uh, commissioner's finding.
0: Yeah, and you truly hope that it does have that result in the end, because I know we went through something very similar with Facebook when we found out how and why they were collecting our uh, data. And did yes. it drive enough people away to tank that platform? No, it absolutely did not.
2: No, but Facebook is having its own problems right now. Yeah, so, that's true. <laughs> you, know, if you keep doing this long enough, it'll come back to rouge. <laughs> and to be fair, I'm
0: no longer a Facebook user, so it must be having some effect somewhere.
2: There you go. Neither am I. <laughs> hey,
0: and thank you so much. It was so lovely chatting with you. Really appreciate getting your perspective on this.
2: Oh, my pleasure, as always.
0: I'm Nikki Reitmeyer filling in for Jill Bennett this afternoon. In 2016, BC's provincial health officer declared a public health emergency in response to the rise in drug overdoses and deaths in this province. In May of 2020, the province recorded 170 suspected illicit drug toxicity deaths, the highest monthly total ever recorded in our province. That equals about 5.5 deaths a day. It's a 93% spike over the number of deaths in May 2019, so compared to May of last year. And it's a 44% increase over April of this year, 2020. Now, to put this into context in BC, to date, to the course of this pandemic, there have been 174 deaths from COVID-19. So if more people are dying from drug overdoses, then Why has the urgency of the provincial response seemed so different to how they've addressed COVID-19? Not to say that the province has done nothing, because they certainly have not. They have worked very hard to tackle the opioid crisis. Dr. Bonnie Henry, we know, has been a passionate advocate for addressing this issue. But certainly, there must be some lessons— That we've learned from how we've handled the pandemic here in BC, tactics in regards to raising awareness and alerting the public about COVID-19, that we could or should apply to the overdose crisis as well. This province has been successful in tackling the COVID-19 pandemic, but we have not yet been successful in tackling the opioid overdose epidemic in this province. My next guest has some ideas about this. In fact, she's even started a petition. She's done so for some very personal reasons. Karina Stone lost her husband, Michael, in 2017 to fentanyl poisoning. Karina, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you first Um, tell us a bit bit about Michael? I'd love to know more about Michael.
3: Sure. I mean, he personally, um, he was the most brilliant, funny, loving father and partner. Um, He was a teacher. He taught Buddhism. He wrote um, multiple books and had a large international following of students who practiced meditation and yoga. And um, he is grieved. He's grieved all over the world. And I think that made my loss um, different to a lot of these kinds of losses because it was very public, um, which is part of why I started this petition to um, call on call on folks who have the platform to treat these deaths with the emotional intelligence that they handle COVID deaths, um, because of the impact on stigma that that could have for these folks who are using drugs and for the families who are grieving and living with addictions. Your petition is approaching
0: 5,000 signatures, so you're not alone in feeling this way. And when I heard of it, I thought, geez, that is a great idea. You know, every day in the news when we hear about the number of people who have been infected with COVID-19 or the number of people who have died from the virus very tragically, it really shakes you. It shakes you to your core. Yet so many of the drug overdose deaths seem to go undetected or... I suppose we don't tend to think of them as much because they're not brought up daily. We do hear the numbers, we hear them announced, but there seems to be perhaps a lack of humanity when you hear all of these statistics lumped together instead of hearing about those individuals one by one.
3: Sure. And that's also, I mean, the history of criminalizing drugs is a history that's racist and a history that's based on stigma and, um, we all know we're in a cultural moment of ripping the band-aid off of a lot of racist policies and stigmatizing policies and the way that we frame drug users is another one of those. Um, so I feel also that we are really in the, at this moment, momentous precipice to change, to change uh, policy around this issue and to change, um, Public perception, and and I think that the public perception public perception part is important to me because I, I know I know what the demands are of um, these organizations. Mom, stop the harm, which I'm a member of. Um, these very evidence based demands to um, have safe supply for drug users, keep them alive so people can recover, and to decriminalize possession, individual possession of personal use, illicit drugs so that people are out of the criminal justice system and, and moved into the healthcare system. Um, We need these measures to, to gather force. They need to happen and they need public demand. And there isn't enough public demand because it's such a marginal issue. And so this petition is my attempt to, Rally in some support. we need we need people to see and to really feel, and I think that's the most important thing is we need people to feel the emotional aspect of losing someone to this crisis. And we're witnessing. We're witnessing right now how effective that is. the The updates on the on the COVID losses are so incredibly emotionally intelligent and impactful. Mm-hmm. And the skill there is 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 being used to garner like social awareness to follow through with these social distancing measures and all of these things. And we find out about these pockets of of COVID and 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 even though these are numbers, we're, we're we're told we're reassured by Dr. Bonnie Henry and her team that they are not just numbers. These folks are not just numbers. they are individuals and there are families that are grieving. and And this is very different than the experience of a family grieving uh, an opioid, an apparent opioid-related death. like this is this is very, very different. and and we can we can do better. and And this province is doing amazing in how and how Covid is being covered. Um, speaking with the coroner's office, they reassured me, and I really believe they are. They're doing so much. They're working beyond their capacity. And they are, in BC, the only jurisdiction releasing illicit drug toxicity data as quickly as they are. And um, I see that. I hear that. And it's a big ask to release numbers more frequently. And I think, like with COVID, what we're seeing is our government can be a model. Our government can be exceptional. Um, and I think we can do this with the opiate crisis also. And this is such a platform to have an effect on public stigma. Um, you know, the, Dr. Bonnie Henry re- um, replied to my petition and, and said that it takes time to identify the factors that contribute to the deaths, including toxicology and other information that is essential to our understanding how to prevent them. My following up with the coroner's office You know, to clarify what that means, the toxicology, the toxicology we're using here in BC is actually expedited toxicology testing. So we're getting results out faster than other parts of the country even. So we are able to get these numbers faster. When the numbers are released, the data is shared, quote unquote, under the caution that it is preliminary data. We know final toxicology takes time. We know, I'm, I'm, I must assume that the COVID final data must also take time. These must be preliminary numbers of sorts because, it, you know, people have comorbidities and autopsies must have to happen and whatnot. Um, but the impact can happen sooner. The other reasons for um, delaying the information release are largely, largely statistical to um, identify the trends and what's changing with COVID, that people are dying alone indoors, that's important. Mm -hmm. That's important so we can issue the plea to the public to check in on loved ones and all of those things. But what if we were finding out that, that, say, Coquitlam has a sudden handful of deaths related to overdose, related to opioid um, toxicity, and what would the impact of that be? And we haven't tried that. That model hasn't been tried. We actually haven't tried to see what the impact could be of releasing, um, local community knowledge. Um, you know, as you would, if there was a bear in the area, it would be in the news alert. There's a bear in the area. (laughs) And I mean, everything, the differences between that and opioid losses is stigma. And so my, my my plea is just to let, let's, um, let's set aside the, the need to have analyzed all of the data, um, before it's presented, and let's just present it as we know it's coming. And yes, it will be a tax from the coroner's service um, with the controls that Dr. Bonnie Henry has right now, considering it is a public health emergency. I would imagine that there could be um, a resourcing for the coroner's service to support them in getting numbers out. I imagine it takes more human hours to get that data out. Um And uh, yeah, I I imagine that that's possible. I imagine we have the human power to do that. From what you're saying, I really get the impression that you do
0: sincerely believe that the province wants to make a difference on this file, that you sincerely believe that Dr. Bonnie Henry, your heart is in fixing this opioid epidemic. But do you have faith that that change will ever fully come?
3: do I have faith that that change will come and that that will manifest in, in something that will change the public discourse? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I wouldn't be doing this and making this effort if I didn't have hope towards that. Um, we are, we're in this cultural moment where things are shifting. We're seeing power structures change. Um, we're seeing the, the history of white supremacy get named and work towards healing and this is all potential. And this was my husband's most passionate place in life was the potential for changing narratives that are causing harm. And um, so I feel a legacy with him and I feel hopefulness that, that his death can be also a platform for encouraging this kind of a change to happen. And yeah, sure. I have, I have hope, but I also, I'm, I think also this please like sign this petition, demand this from from our healthcare government and, and help because it's also really tiring and hard to do this as a widow, as someone who's grieving with children. Um, we need we need like this rolling ball of public care and it needs to grow and grow and grow and um, it needs to it needs to come out of the hands of folks like those in the organization Mom Stop the Harm. Who are all grieving, and this is all really intense all the time to to work with this stuff and triggering. And we need we need more people to step in and to acknowledge that people that use drugs are not are not less worthy of their lives than people who
0: don't. Karina Stone, thank you so much for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Karina has a petition on change.org that you can check out. It's called Release Overdose Overdose Death Numbers as they become available if you'd like to sign that petition. Okay, coming up next, what changes need to be made to how police respond to wellness checks as we continue our conversation on what needs to change in this society? Our next guest has some ideas. We'll speak to him coming up in just a few minutes from now. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer filling in for Jill Bennett. You're listening to 980 CKNW. Well, I've cut a few lifts and Ubers and taxis in these more recent weeks since the province has started opening up again. And the conversation that I have with all the drivers, it's usually pretty similar. I mean, once you get past the, hey, how are you guys and how was your day going? The conversation always seems to evolve into how has business meet? How has business been? Has it been busy for you? Are you finding yourself taking lots of trips and driving lots of people around, or has it been quite slow? And for many, they've said, yeah, it's picking up, but it has been a struggle. Now I had a driver, I'm thinking back to Friday night, who said that for the taxi industry, he's felt a double blow. First, the introduction of ride hailing, then the pandemic. Now, the province has announced it will be reducing annual licensing fees for taxi and limousine operators. This is, as the province says, to support the industry during the COVID-19 pandemic. Will it make a difference? Gurdeep Singh Sahota is the general manager of Sunshine Cabs in North Vancouver. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Hello, Nikki. How are you?
0: I'm doing well, thank you. How have you been? Okay, let's have that conversation. How have you been doing? How has business been?
4: Well, businesses, uh, uh, our industry is facing an existential crisis. Uh, The driver who told you about the the one-two punch uh, Mm -hmm. is uh, conveying a very popular feeling and mood in the industry, which is still reeling from the introduction of ride-hailing. And then obviously, uh, as part of the general business community, has been devastated by COVID-19. And uh, so we're in dire straits right now.
0: So when you hear about a measure like this that's being introduced by the government when they say that they will have taxi and limousine operators pay a bit less in order to keep their vehicles on the road, do you see this as a great relief or does it make that much of a difference overall in your financial picture?
4: Well, you know, uh, our licenses uh, are renewed on a yearly basis, and the uh, the regular fee is $100 per license. So, for example, you know, Sunshine Cabs has 74 licenses that so we would pay $7,400. And by, uh, you know, reducing the fee to a per plate fee of $50 and then a cap, an overall cap for the company or licensee to $5,000, it does have you know, some positive effect, it'll certainly, you know, uh, you know, help the bottom line. But ultimately, the bigger problem is a is lack of business. And the fact that, you know, ride hailing has pretty much been like a bulldozer for our industry. So there is nothing I mean, it's helpful, but you know, it, it, uh, it's, it, oh, it doesn't have that much of an impact. There are bigger changes that need to be brought in.
0: What are those bigger changes?
4: Well, the biggest, uh, you know, the two of them are very large. One is uh, the fact that, uh, you know, when this government, through their the Passenger Transportation Board, brought in rules and regulations for the operation of ride-hailing in British Columbia, they gave these huge zones to ride-hailing companies. So the area that where we live and operate in here in Metro Vancouver comes in, what is called zone one and zone one stretches all the way from Whistler uh, through Metro Vancouver, the Fraser Valley, all the way out to Hope. So they have been given this huge zone to operate in. And the reality for us, Nikki, is that, you know, our company's on the North shore. And if one of my drivers gets a trip out to White Rock or Langley, he has to drive back 45 minutes to an hour uh, just to be able to pick up his or her next trip and that is uh, it's, it's it's devastating. It's a an old, vestige, and archaic set of regulations that we've been imploring with successive governments to remove. We cannot. We want to compete with Uber and Lyft, but we cannot because they're because of an uneven playing field.
0: So why hasn't the province yet addressed that? Have you had any indication that they could be moving in that direction?
4: Well, you know, uh, only they know why they haven't moved, Uh, (laughs) uh, you know, and and they haven't certainly shared it with us. You know, we are given these, uh, you know, excuses that, oh, you know, we've given it. That's up to the PTB. Well, actually, Bill 55 gave the PTB the marching orders on what they could and could not adjudicate on. And it is up to the minister and the government to tell the PTB what kinds of powers they have. Ultimately, the minister, the buck stops with the minister. I'll give you an example. On this cabinet table where these ministers sit, a few seats over from Claire Travena sits David Eby, the Attorney General. Mm -hmm. He has, through a successive series of ministerial directives, given direction to ICBC and the BC Utilities Commission, which is... And an independent commission quite similar to the PTB to summarily and immediately approve insurance products for TNS companies and taxis. So if one minister of the crown can direct a utilities or a independent tribunal, why cannot Claire Travena use that same power and tell the PTB, you know what, give these taxis the same level playing field. If there's no boundaries, for ride-hailing, there can, there should not be any boundaries for taxis as well, mind you. And we, and this too, after the whole province, you know, there's no boundaries in any regional district for taxis except Metro Vancouver. So we're saying to them, to the minister, bring us in line with every other regional districts where there is no internal boundaries for taxis.
0: So when you hear an announcement like today that the province is now saying there'll be a reduction in annual licensing fees for taxi and limousine operators, that's to them just throwing you a small bone. When meanwhile the whole roast beef is still on the table,
4: it's like a lollipop, Nikki. You know, yeah. <laughs> we don't want a lollipop <laughs> when you want something more, something more substantive.
0: Well, hey, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it, Gurdip.
4: Thank you for your time. Appreciate and it. Best
0: wishes so as well with your business.
4: Thank you, my dear. Take